This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the Late Late Show. I am Fanola Jackson, and we are live until 10 p.m. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's really great to have you along. Tonight, we will be chatting about special educational needs and disabilities, and I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Orban, who will inspire, offer practical help, ideas, and support for the busy Senko. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Late Late Show. I am Fanola Jackson and we are live here until 10 p.m. Feels quite strange to be in school on a Monday, doesn't it, with all the recent bank holidays we've had? But isn't it fantastic to actually have some sunshine? And I read this morning that with plenty of sunshine in the forecast for this week, this is going to help us all get outside and improve our mood, according to mental health charity Mind. So that's something really positive to keep in our minds. So tonight, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our guest, Gary Orban, who is author of The Lone Senko. Um, I read his book and my copy is absolutely covered with highlighters and post-it notes. So I was delighted when Gary agreed to come on tonight's show. And Gary hasn't just written a book. He's a director of SEND. He's a real advocate for SEND and a content specialist at the Education Endowment Foundation and involved in a whole host of SEND-related activities. So, Gary, are you there? I am here. I hope you can hear me okay, Vanilla. Oh, I can hear you really clearly. That's brilliant. So, big welcome to you. And could we start, could you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and your roles? Yeah, of course. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on. Um, It's an absolute pleasure. So, thank you. Um, yeah, so, so my name's Gary Albin. Uh, my substantive role is leading on SEND provision for a multi-academy trust. So that's what keeps me busy and keeps me, you know, really, really closely connected to classrooms. I'm also a secondary drama teacher and I'm still just about hanging in there teaching drama. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I, my job is to work mostly with the adults who work with the children with special needs across a group of 10 schools. And that's in London and Hertfordshire. And then otherwise, I do some work with various organizations as you've alluded to so that's the EEF I was on secondment to them last year for two days a week and then now I do sort of slightly more ad hoc work with them and with real group who provide postgraduate send training mostly delivered online and remote and and, and sort of flexibly around around um, colleagues uh, work you know work hours and things and then bits and bobs with whole education and with the National Institute of Teaching and one or two others. I've got, a, I really love my job. I, re, I love the variety. I love the, you know, the, the, the people and the children and adults I get to work with. So, um, and I love being able to come and talk things uh, about SEND um, with my Monday evening. So thanks again. Oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely delighted to have you. And gosh, you are very busy. So we're honoured that you've squeezed us into your hectic schedule. Not at all. So, so Gary, I'm just wondering if we'll start with the green paper published last year entitled Mm. Right Right Support, Right Place, Right Time. And this certainly has promised a lot, hasn't it? And an increase in additional high needs funding on top of the core school budget to over 10 billion by 2024-25. And there is also the promise to build 33 new special free schools for children who need more intensive support. And this is interesting because I personally believe there should be special schools and I'm sure we all champion parental choice. Mm. And, I, and I'm thinking inclusion really, you know, it, it's, an imp- it's an approach, isn't it? Not just a physical space. Um, so under the yeah. new plan, yeah. and, and I'm just, you know, wondering what you sort of think about that with the commitment to these uh, special schools. Do you think that will actually happen or is it something that's just been promised? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to be really downhearted and pessimistic about um, uh, anything that comes centrally around SEND because of where we are, I suppose. You know, and the proof is in 
the waiting times for specialist assessments and the um, difficulties that local authorities have meeting their legal duties and the um, pressures on schools to do all the things that they need to do and legally have a duty to do towards pupils and their families but struggle to do. Um, the statistics around local authorities meeting their 20-week window for an EHD needs assessment. You know, think, things really aren't great in so many processes around SEND. And what you see that reflected in, unfortunately, of course, is some of the outcomes around pupils with SEND, around, you know, nationally speaking, a lower attendance, higher suspension rates, lower progress rates when pupils have SEND compared to their non-SEND peers. So I don't want to sort of be all doom and gloom this evening. I certainly don't um, don't plan to be. Um, but when you, to answer your question there directly about whether this is sort of we should be you know happy and cheery about this new new document, I think the proof is clearly going to be in the execution of it, isn't it? And there was lots in the Send Code of Practice 2014 revised 2015 that gives gave us lots of hope, sounded very sensible. And I think the what the Green Paper has done and the improvement plan since then has sort of done is is acknowledge that there were real failings in implementation. So. So I suppose without getting, I'm sure no one wants to spend an hour talking government policy on a Monday night. But um, <laughs> what what I see, where there are there are things in um, the improvement plan that seem sensible, seem to make mm -hmm. sense, um, and I can go through some of those if that's sort of interesting enough to you as a host for me to talk through. But um, but as a, you know, the proof is in the execution, and what you see, I think, in the a send an AP improvement plan that you didn't see in the send code of practice when it came out in 2015 is lots of reference to pilots and lots of reference to working groups and lots of references to thing being regionally regionally sort of you know done done by regions and then sort of expanded out so you know there is a real i think commitment to going um uh one sort of central top down offer that we've decided exactly how it's going to go isn't going to work but also that having regional variation from local authority to local authority just bamboo bamboozles any Senko or parent or anyone working across boundaries and that's been you know a real cause of, of added complexity to the system so um so yeah the, the proof is in the execution clearly but um but there are things in there that i do agree with and that's you know it talks about um if it talks about um skilling up the workforce and additional training for teaching assistants and additional training for teachers and we see that a bit through the um through the early career framework the um initial teacher training through the mpq suite but but clearly, I think it needs to be at all levels and it needs to be expanded much, much further in order to really skill up that workforce for for what really feels like an increased level of need from what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from colleagues at the moment. Absolutely. Yes, I was just going to come on to the um, pledge to um, really develop training for staff, which is fantastic, mm. isn't it? Because when I did my PGCE, and this is going back 20 odd years, I think I had barely half a day on send and mm. I'm currently mentoring a really lovely ECT at my own school and she tells me that training in this really vital area was pretty scanty for her. Mm. Um, so it appears that in you know that things haven't moved on that much or perhaps moved fast enough in the right direction mm. up until recently. So it's really great to hear about that commitment. Yeah. And also yeah, I also think the I, is it the, the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education has also is also looking at developing apprenticeships for teachers of sensory impairments such as deafness and blindness. So th that's positive yeah. as well, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. And then it's I see you know they talk about access to external specialists and um you know training more educational psychologists and having to that that specialist end. So what you described there is that quite the specialist end around sensory impairment. Educational psychology is the really obviously you know a specialist end in terms of a doctorate level of education for these um, colleagues, but it's really every adult in every classroom, isn't it? And that's where I think we've got to be a bit careful because if we target MPQs, ECTs, and ITTs, well, there's a there's quite a hefty gap in the middle of people who deserve really high quality education, you know, support, training, coaching around send. And I think there are some really good models out there, aren't there? It, it, what what I think is um, there, there are two things that need to happen now. We need to embed SEND through everything. So I think mm -hmm. in my role, for example, in my trust, we have a, a skip program in, a, in my in the trust I work for. And so, <coughs> excuse me, so we make sure that um, SEND isn't just, and this week we're doing SEND because, you know, there are real limitations when you make it a total side event and an add-on and a something else. On the other hand, you really want SEND to feel integral to everything, but not lost within it. So. You don't sort of go, well, yeah, but it's all about SEND, so we never need to mention SEND. You know, people, it needs a really acute focus on SEND, 
woven through everything and it needs to be if we're talking about um you know modeling then actually within our really good program about different ways that teachers can model to pupils actually let's just uh, zoom in particularly on why modeling might be particularly important for pupils to send and any nuance on how you might model for some pupils with additional needs in your classroom and that's what you want isn't it where it's fully embedded it's not a total tack on oh and by the way this is send week which i think is, is you know gets problematic um you really need it woven throughout and when it isn't then people get the impression that meeting the needs of pupils with send is is learning a totally new and separate language and I really don't believe it is. You know, there, there are pupils have really uh, unique and bespoke and individualized needs uh, sometimes. Uh, and for every child, it's about knowing them, isn't it? For every child, it's about knowing them. But it's not about doing 30 different sets of things for 30 different children in the class. It's about a core of inclusive teaching practices that teachers implement uh, relative to the age and the, you know, the ability and the subject they're teaching. And then they sort of adapt those as they go and make little tweaks for an individual here provide a bit more support here and a bit less there um and take lots of feedback about how pupils are going on but it's not and i try and say this to colleagues a lot, uh, a lot i really don't believe that meeting the needs of pupils with send is learning a different language it's about thinking about the language of teaching and learning that that teachers already know and many tas already know and senko certainly should already know and then going what's the nuance here in this really good effective teaching practice i'm doing not let me throw the teaching practice away that i that normally works for me but won't work because the child has send for example it's not learning a new language it's thinking about the nuance you need on your on your current language in the vast majority of occasions i would say yeah absolutely that's excellent and i think you know really champion the fact that send's really got to be made you know an integral part and we've really got to empower and support teachers on the ground haven't we with this and not have it as a sort of add-on or a special one-off week um so yeah so i think i mean i think overall the plan sounds good and you know, I particularly like the plan's language around inclusion, you know, where it says an inclusive society where every child and young person is set up to thrive. And I think, you know, look at international organisations like the United Nations, mm. UNESCO, World Health Organisation. These all confidently state that inclusion is a must do. But unfortunately, as sometimes this is just lip service and it's not actually lived out. And just want to sort of um, talk about something personal for a moment, Gary. And in your mm. book, you mentioned about, you know, your own dad was very passionate about inclusion and you mm. picked picked this up as a child. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and how important it is to have this whole school approach to inclusion? Yeah. So, yeah. So my dad ran a, a Leonard Cheshire home. So they're homes for um for for people with adults with disabilities or disabled adults rather so um so my dad was a nurse and then he went into to um leadership around um services for young people <clears throat> with children with sen and disabilities um for a charity called fab who i spent a lot of time sort of in and around as a child at events that my dad was running or that kind of thing and then um and then we moved to Somerset because he got a job as a general manager of a Lancashire home. So there, there were 35 or so residents there. It's still there. It's in a lovely little village in Somerset called Timsbury. Um and um he and so being but I remember him give very um <clears throat> excuse me, very vividly giving a talk um to a, a mixed room of of disabled and non-disabled adults and I was sort of, you know, I guess mum was out that night so the kids were there or whatever. And he was giving this talk and saying what's better the Leonard Cheshire bus, the Leonard Cheshire minibus, or the Badgerline bus. Badgerline run the, the bus services in that part of North East Somerset. And so um, he was saying, what's better? And so there were some residents and staff of the Leonard Cheshire home were in the audience here, and they sort of quite proudly were saying, the Leonard, you know, the Leonard Cheshire bus. <laughs> and my dad was trying to make the point that um, actually, well, well, no, it's a lovely bus, and we're pleased to have had the funds to you know to get it. But it's the it's the lesser less good option, because what we want is actually for the bus service to, to to stop outside the Cheshire home because there's an accessibility need for a bus stop right here and for that bus to have ramps so that people who are wheelchair users can get on and off them at ease and that um and there's that full access and once they get on the bus there's no sort of stigma or um no access issues or anything um so he was making the point there that actually you know for, for full inclusion and, and then so I, I, it's not then that um you know my that was a direct career path but actually when I became the Senko it, those words of dad's and you know my dad died when I was 25 so there's an extra sort of pertinence for me around anything connected to my dad as, as maybe some of your listeners will sort of testify to yeah. you know 
Um, but it's it's you know it's it it's carried me through that actually if um I, I don't it's hard for all for schools to be all things to all people. It's uh, hand on heart. There are children who I've worked with and young people I've worked with who I think would have been and, and were when they moved better served in a special school because of the nature of those child's difficulties. But every school, if we're talking about comprehensive education, then if the, if the family want them in their local school and if um, if there's any way that it can be made to work, then we need to, to you know, to go that extra mile and um, and to do the work that's needed. The problem, I think, is when SEND creates enormous when when meeting the needs of people's ascend feels like an impossible task for staff and so that brings us back to to um to, to training really doesn't it and to going actually what does staff need in order to be able to enact this vision of inclusion that i think we'd all sign up for honestly i mean no no one is saying that we want anyone who's a disabled person or has a special education need to be sort of you know out of sight out of mind i've never met any teacher who doesn't want to provide an inclusive classroom but actually what needs to go alongside that? So for example, in some of the schools that I work in, we've made sure that every single half term, there's a SEND focused CPD of some kind. Now we could just divide each half term, you know, if there are six across the year, we go autism, dyslexia, ADHD, you know, we could do it like that, but we've chosen not to. We've chosen actually to use that time much more flexibly. So if we have these one page profiles that describe a child's needs, for example, and what they do really well, what teachers can do in class to support the learning what they want to do when they're older those kind of things we've got these one page profiles we've got a lot of work into into creating them um with the child as you say with the family but then what if no one ever reads them so actually what we need to do is not just make it a professional expectation that they are read and and reflected on and taken in and applied in class but actually let's give well, let's acknowledge that meeting the needs of people's ascent sometimes does take a bit more time and therefore let's give teachers the time so in that within direct time of teachers Every half term, there's an hour after school for the Senko to decide how it should be used. And they may well say this, you know, for this half term, actually, it's about we're all in the hall. We've got the pupil profiles out and we're having subject focused discussions about meeting the needs of these children at subject tables with the Senko and their colleagues sort of around for a bit of questioning and discussion and that kind of thing. Or maybe the next half term, we're going, um, well, we need to track progress of pupils with SEND uh, in a bit more detail, knowing those smaller steps of progress and linking back to the SEN support targets or EHP outcomes. So um, how to, but again, just going, that's an extra thing because it's, because we want to be inclusive, we all have to do extra things. Well, again, let's look at the, that impact on teacher workload. Where can we build that into the existing, um, into things that we want teachers to be doing? So we acknowledge it takes a bit more time, but we build it in. So that's in half term two, it might be that we're all updating the target sheets. And half term three, it might be that we've got, you know, five, six, seven, eight pupils across the school for whom actually we're not quite serving them as well as we should be. Um, we're not quite getting their strategies right or where we are enacting the strategies. It's not quite having the impact we want. So let's call those teachers together and TAs who work with that, that child or young person or those children, young people. And we'll have what we call student conferences around, you know, child A in year eight or child B in year three, whatever, where we just need to sit everyone around a table work out what's working well, what isn't working so well, troubleshoot it a bit, arrange maybe to do some peer observations if it's working really well in one but not in another. There's a little presentation from the Senko to remind everyone about the child's needs potentially. And then, you know, and that's that's the focus. So I suppose that's my long way of saying I think we can be cleverer than just going, you know, in October we're doing autism and in January we're doing dyslexia. There is a need for teachers to know about all those needs, don't get me wrong. But when, I think it's often more impactful done through the filter of particular children who look familiar and who are real humans that the adults in the school know, I think that can be more impactful. And then it's easier to revisit it. It's easier to tailor it to those children. And it just feels a bit less abstract. And then when you have the chance to then relate it to a particular subject as well. So if we're thinking about meeting the needs of children with literacy difficulties, and then we're in departments thinking about, okay, well, as a music department or as a key stage two team, what does that mean for us? And, and what does that mean for how we deliver and how we can support those children? with those literacy difficulties such as uh, which may include dyslexia yeah i think that's really inspired and it makes so much sense and as you said that's you know got the potential to be really impactful and make a difference and i think you know classroom teachers can feel really isolated can't they and feel like they're you know not doing a good enough job and and just to sort mm. of bring colleagues out of the classroom and just get all the heads on you know on 
you know, a pupil profile and, and really explore that as a team and collaboratively, that there's real power in that, isn't it? So I think that's brilliant. And mm. I hope teachers listening take that idea back to their schools and and suggest that because, you know, it's lovely to hear how well that is working. And that's that's something that that could easily be replicated, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's, and you know, <clears throat> there are plenty that we're, you know, doing lot. there's lots of work in progress where I'm concerned in the, you know, you never quite get there, do you? But I think the hardest thing for a Senko is um, that they don't have a magic wand. And I think it's a real sort of magic wandy sort of position in the school, isn't it? Where actually people reach out for help and that's really great that they do. But the hardest thing for a Senko I have found in terms of um, being able to have pride in what you do to, 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 to um, sustain resilience over a term is that you don't have the answer. And what you've got is a, is a bank of suggestions and things to try. And the, the sort of, the, the more your, you know, education around SEND or experience within SEND or just the greater your imagination sometimes, um, or the more access you have to, to external expertise sometimes, whatever it is, um, all you're getting is better and more educated guesses, aren't you? We don't have the answer because what worked for one autistic child um, is probably worth a go with many other autistic children, but it's no guarantee. And what even harder than that, what worked for the same autistic child last term or week or yesterday may not work next term or next week or tomorrow. So it's really tricky. And <coughs> there isn't that there isn't that magic wand, as you say, but we need opportunities for professional dialogue. And we need to have the professional respect for, for, for all colleagues to sort of have a basic understanding that we're all doing our best, a, mm -hmm. a, a basic sort of acceptance that none of us are there yet. And within that, we then work together knowing the Senko has some specialism, but that's only meaningful with a teacher or TA who is open to feedback and isn't expecting it to work uh, sort of miracles, but is willing to, to have a go, to take feedback, to be reflective on their own practice and then to try something totally different if that didn't work. And just to know that that's the level of um, uh, sort of, you know, you're never done, are you, within SEND? That's the level of reflection and reiteration and... Um, just trial and error sometimes that's needed. Trial and error makes it sound um, like a totally inexact science, but it <laughs> but it is inexact and it is about yeah. going, you know, I, I this worked in my experience with this child or this class or this strategy looks good or I've read this book or I've listened to this radio <laughs> session or whatever. <laughs> it's only ever I'll try it and then we'll have a, you know, within send we call it assess, plan, do, review, don't we? We've got that cycle. Yeah. That's the best we can do is review and then reassess and then try something, do it, do it again, do it more, or, or try something a bit different if needed. Absolutely, and it really gives that lovely opportunity for teachers to celebrate, you know, those quick wins or small wins or those special moments and just gives that the airtime. And sometimes, you know, we're 100 miles an hour in school, aren't we mm. ticking off things off an agenda, and we don't celebrate enough. And those wins are so important, aren't they, and can really motivate and empower and really encourage staffs you know colleagues to carry on and to have that culture of let's try you know yeah. um whenever yeah and, and you're right about yeah and you're right sorry to interrupt yeah you're right about celebration Fanella, because it's um I think there is a bit of a negative narrative around send in many um schools or classrooms or across education um and I'm sort of you know partly sympathetic to that because People are trying really hard and it doesn't always come off. And for that true for send and non-send. And I don't I don't mean to paint a negative picture myself, but we know from the national data that lots isn't going right yet. Um and so what you do get, you know, is as I encourage Senkos not to walk past that comment in the staff room or in a corridor or from a teacher who may be incredibly well-meaning, who may be working incredibly hard for those pupils and it's not working. And they just make a comment and it's, you know, that this child can't learn or is lazy or whatever. And I'm not saying we look to sort of start, um, uh, you know, to be um, start arguments with our colleagues, but also not to walk past those comments. And if someone says, well, they just they can't learn, actually, they've learned nothing since September, then um, then actually it's go, oh, well, can I come and have a look? Or why don't we, you know, make 20 minutes and we'll have a talk about them? Because actually in, in their other subject, they make quite good progress. So let's have a chat about that. So it's not about, you know, picking fights in the staff room, but it's about just not walking past it either and knowing that um, as a Senko or actually any colleague, any inclusive minded colleague in the school who cares passionately about SEND, it's about noticing there that a teacher is struggling, uh, trying to be totally judgment free about it, but then 
not leaving it either and not just, you know, quietly moving the child to a different class or not just quietly accepting that that child basically isn't going to make progress in that subject this year, but going, okay, it's tough. We acknowledge the difficulty. It is tough. Not always, but, you know, some people's descent, it's incredibly easy and an absolute joy and no extra work at all to meet their needs. But, but where it is tough to go, okay, I'm going to come support you. That's my role in school is to advocate for these pupils and also to to support colleagues to make to make them to make the difference there. And there are some centres I think, and I don't I don't blame them. I think it's the way the system is set up, and it's better or worse in some parts of the country. It may be better with the new with the new national framework. We'll see. But um, where centres are sort of incentivized to live behind a laptop, you know, the, the more um, I've got a lot of parent emails, so I'm going to reply to all the parent emails. I've got a lot of um, referrals to make for assessment and the forms are quite long, so I'm going to fill them all in. Um, the, the sort of the proxy for whether um, a child uh, can get provision is do they have an EHCP? So I'll put my efforts into gathering data and making EHC needs assessment requests. So, you know, there's a lot of incentives for Senko to, to never leave their, their office and, and sort of inclusion by laptop. And clearly there's always limits to that, aren't there? There are limitations. Mm. And again, it's judgment-free because... And I've been a senko. It can feel um, like you know that's actually you need to do that because your list of laptop jobs gets so long. But actually, there's always going to be a limit in terms of impact of many of those things. When what are you not doing by doing all those laptop tasks? Well, you're not out and about around the school, picking up things early, having conversations with children that get them back into their classroom, noticing things that noticing things that staff are doing, and celebrating the good going actually where someone's doing great things here can we film a bit of their lesson can we ask a colleague to pop into their lesson and see what they're doing can we ask that science teacher to stand up in front of the whole the school staff and talk about that little strategy they've employed that might have some cross-curricular sort of benefit or could they speak at their next department meeting about what they're doing with their year four class and why it's working particularly well you know so you need to be out and about anticipating things early praising and celebrating things um and if by, by by leaving behind a laptop, um, that's not possible. So uh, so no judgments, but clearly the role needs redefining if uh, if and when it becomes a laptop job. But I would say actually, to, full disclosure as well, when I was a new Senko, I knew not a percent of what I needed to, to know to be a good Senko. And I think that many people on the call might be in the same position now. And actually, what do you do when you um you know when you've got a, a job you can't do essentially? Well, I'll stick to what I I'll stick to the elements of the job that I can do, which was I could fill in a form pretty well, and I could get some interventions going, and I could um uh, sort of support my TAs, but I couldn't go into an English teacher's classroom and and improve their practice. Or it would feel incredibly exposing if I tried to. So actually, I think there's a little bit as well. I suppose is what I'm saying is of as Senkos, we can be guilty of going to the laptop because um, it feels more comfortable sometimes. So there's that challenge for Senkos as well, I think, to go. Uh, it can be a bit more exposing. And going out around the class, around the school, is probably going to add to my to-do list, not take away things. But it's the right thing to do, and it's the impactful thing to do. Absolutely. Now, I love what you said about challenging those negative comments and just sort of, you know, really encouraging positivity and really valuing dignity and respect and living that out in the school and valuing the infinite worth of every child and that can only mm. really be done if you challenge that and change the narrative and model you know finding those positives and, and as you said taking a closer look and really drilling down into you know the progress that has been made so you haven't got that negative attitude or mindset winning through every time I, I think that's mm. so so important well, Gary's going. You're going to be with us, aren't you? Live until ten o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Just a shout out. So, if anybody you know has any questions, you know, Gary is the absolute you know mind of knowledge and expertise. It'd be really lovely to um, get any comments or questions from listeners. But we're going to take a quick break now for the news. But stay tuned. We'll be here until ten, and we would love to hear any comments or thoughts for Gary. This program Absolutely, is brought thanks. to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC features a story on the lack of guidance for teachers and schools on the issue of how to support transgender pupils. The article on the news website highlights the fact that the government first promised guidance for schools in relation to transgender more than five years ago but the Department for Education is only due to publish this term. The piece has been written by the LGBT correspondent and the LGBT producer, and it outlines the difficulty they have had finding schools who are willing to talk about transgender policies, describing it as almost impossible. They say the BBC contacted head teachers across England, but almost all were too anxious to be interviewed on camera unwilling to draw attention to their schools or pupils who identify as trans or non-binary. Most head teachers who did respond to questions said that without guidance schools were left to make their own decisions, with some saying this left them in a no-win situation and fearing that whatever they did they would be criticised or even vilified. One head teacher did say that the schools wanted guidance and advice to help ensure they were making decisions in the best interests of the child. The article also referenced survey tool Teacher Tap, which had asked almost 7,000 teachers about their experiences of supporting transgender pupils. About 8% of primary school teachers said they taught trans or non-binary pupils, compared to 75% of teachers in secondary. Just over half said they were not very or not at all confident about next steps to take if a child said they wanted to change their name, pronouns or aspects of their appearance. The guidance is expected to address these issues, as well as the issue of how to involve parents if a child wishes to identify as a gender different to their birth sex, and what to do if a parent disagrees. When BBC News spoke to parents, it was also difficult to find a view everyone agrees with, and parents were also reluctant to speak on record. Some told the BBC they did not want any decisions made without their approval, but others wanted schools to put their child's choices first. It is expected that the Department for Education will publish a draft for consultation prior to final guidance being issued, perhaps highlighting how sensitive the issue is. It is likely the guidance will cover legal ob obligations for single-sex schools and whether schools should inform parents if their child is questioning their gender. It may offer advice on residential trips and single-sex sports. The DfE has said that the overriding principle would be that the well-being and safeguarding of children was paramount. After last week's online storm over the key stage 2 SATS reading paper, the content of the test has finally been published. It has been reported across media outlets that children had been in tears, some staff had to really think about the answers and parents were annoyed at the stress pupils faced whilst the DfE said the SATS papers were rigorously trialled. The main concerns were over the test's complexity and length, although this spread into debate about the purpose of SATS overall. Details of the test can be found on the Standards and Testing Agency website. In Wales, a plan for a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is said to be likely to fail without a substantial increase in teachers speaking the language. This is according to a Welsh Government report which focuses on the drop in the number of Welsh speakers since their census in 2011. The 2021 census also found a decrease in the number of children and young people able to speak the language. The Welsh Government funds training programmes for those who want to learn or improve their Welsh, who are teachers in schools in Wales. Finally, the BBC covers a story on words and phrases the public would like to see banned. It followed a tweet by Countdown Susie Dent in which she asked which words people would like to see banished from the dictionary. Top of the list was the phrase going forward, followed by the other phrase no disrespect but. The word like when used as a filler word and the expression I'm not going to lie. The list also featured my personal bugbear, sentences that begin with so. Dent used it as an opportunity to explore aspects of the English language and how some phrases, which seem modern, have actually been around for a long time. Details of the full top 10 are available on the BBC News website. So, going forward, I'm not going to lie, this has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, a first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing, and that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again, assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially you see more ads and make them more money, which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TZ Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So, Gary, are you still there? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> you are. I can hear you loud and clear. Thanks. Um, so we were talking before the news about um, just challenging any negative comments. And um, I'm just thinking about um, moving on now and thinking about, you know, a lot of teachers are saying that since the pandemic, the number of children with SEN has increased. And do you feel that that's apparent or real? Yeah, I'd say that's very real, personally, um, and according to, to data. So to start sort of, you know, with big picture stuff. So about the last seven years in a row, there's been increases to the um, overall, um, I'm talking about in England, the overall um, percentage of pupils with SENS are up to about 16.5%. Um, but the really stark thing, if you look at the overall numbers of pupils, what we now call SEN support, and used to call School Action, School Action Plus, Actually, it's a fairly wiggly line uh, that shows that actually we don't have an exact and uh, unified idea of what constitutes send when a child should go on a send register. And um, I think schools used to receive additional money for having a bigger send register. So actually, there was an incentive to, to put loads of people on it. And that's that's moved. So there was a short, you know, a, a fall then. But for the past seven years, we've seen an increase. But actually, the really stark figure, I think, is that um, for the last um, for most of the last 15 years or so, the amount of children, the percentage of children, rather, who had a statement was very static at about 2.6 percent. And it stayed that way until about three years ago. And it's crept up and up and up since and is now about 4 percent. So when you take in the um, uh, growing population as well, it's twice as many EHCPs as there were, um, I forget the statistic, about six years ago potentially, maybe a year or two out there, but there's been double the amount of EHCPs. Um, and I think that when you, um, when, I, when I, what I see in the schools I work in, the schools I visit, and when I speak to colleagues from other schools, if I sometimes, or if I'm speaking at a conference or something, I sometimes say to, you know, to people in the room, does it feel like there are more children with send in your classes or in your school now and the answer is always yes and then I say does it feel like there are more children with more complex needs than there were a few years ago in your class or in your school now and again the answer is always yes and perhaps there's a slight sort of reporting bias towards that I'm not sure but but I certainly think it's real the data says it's real and it says it's real particularly for pupils with the most complex needs and I think that's what people have noticed the most is actually um, I'm used to children all learning at different rates and in slightly different ways and me needing to, to adapt a bit here and adapt a bit there. But it's for those children with the most complex needs who might have, you know, there might have been, you know, a couple across the school. And now it feels like actually, no, this is a consistent part of our offer. Now, there's a positive spin on it, isn't there? Where actually 
what we've got is a, a greater awareness uh, and access to assessment. We've got a greater acceptance in society that um, children are all different, that neurodivergence is a thing, and that children shouldn't have to mask things so they can just get through the day, but they should be allowed to sort of, you know, exhibit some characteristics of, of themselves, even if that doesn't sort of put them in, 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 a, in a neurotypical box. Um, so there is a sort of positive spin on it, but I think the reality on the ground is, is you know, teachers, leaders and teaching assistants really feeling um, that there are, that, you know, there's an increased need there in the classrooms they're teaching. And, uh, you know, no one's saying that's morally wrong, but it comes with implications, as we said, around resourcing, around training, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, Gary, on what you think it takes to be a great Senko. And, you know, mm. I know you've talked about being a great advocate, which you clearly are for SEND and being really accessible and approachable and calm. But if you were to sort of sum up, you know, what qualities do you think a great Senko has to have? Because I think there might be, you know, teachers listening who think, well, I've, you know, I've always wanted to be a Senko, but yeah. I'm not sure I'm the right sort of person. So if anyone was having any doubts, you know, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a lovely question. The first thing I say is that, I think everyone should want to be a Senko. So um, I think too often is, you know, I wrote, so I wrote this book, as you know, and thanks for the lovely things you said about it. But it's um, people, uh, it's called the Lone Senko, as some people might know. So it's called the Lone Senko because if you're a French teacher in a school, then you are line managed. I don't know why I always use the example of French. But if you're a French teacher in a school, you are line managed by the head of French, most likely, who is uh, a French teacher who knows how to teach French and can directly support you in your career um, uh, as you develop and improve as a French teacher. But for many Senkos, if they're their line manager, you know, I don't have data on this, but the line manager is almost certainly someone who hasn't been a Senko, whether they're the head or, or a, another senior member of staff who hasn't been a Senko. And really in that those line management meetings or, or you know, in, the, in those um, supervision and support sort of sessions, often the line manager is the one going how can i help you rather than actually being able to give guidance there so actually if we had more senior leaders who went actually i don't want to be a career senko my journey is to uh, you know headship or assistant headship deputy headship or whatever um, but actually i see being a senko as a really important um, step along the way so in the way that any senior leader i suspect has been a head of year or a head of department or both, or have those other middle leadership roles, I would love it. And I think it would be transformative for the sort of inclusive ethos of many of our schools and for the upskilling of the workforce. If we had more people on their way to senior leadership or, or as their first step into senior leadership, who were the Senko? And clearly it's not helping anyone if these people just do it for 10 minutes, but you know, if going, actually this is, you know, two, three years of my career and I'm gonna commit to it because then actually you get that, you've talked about head of year or head of department, actually a Senko really is both. You're leading that inclusion department, yet you've got a role that also overlaps heavily into pastoral work. You've got the sort of, you know, it, as a step, it's a, it's a whole school role. So rather than going and being the head of year nine, actually be the Senko. And you're not just working across one cohort, you're working across the whole school, all year groups. And you've got that whole school influence. You've got the postgraduate training of the Nesenko Award and perhaps the Senko MPQ when it comes. But there's that, you know, there's an enormous commitment to your professional development when you're the Senko suddenly. Um, and I think ultimately it makes for better head teachers if that is a career path. But your question was about what what needs, um, what makes a good Senko in particular. So I've written a blog post on this and I wrote 10 things. So I'm going to name them if that's all right for now. And I'll, I'll linger slightly longer on some than others. But the first one, as you've mentioned, is positivity. So we need to, when things aren't going well, when a child's got a, hasn't done their homework, you misunderstood something, doesn't seem to remember last week's work, actually to be that positive advocate for, okay, yeah, I appreciate that's tricky, but don't forget that. And we remind people of the positive spirit here. We're the ones sending those postcards home, praising the good practice we've seen in class from, from colleagues. So first is positivity. And then it's about calmness. So I find that um, some sometimes around send there's a sort of pull the trigger mentality isn't there and actually someone i spoke to recently talked about taking the temperature down on a situation so if you can be the calm person to walk someone back from the metaphorical cliff edge of suspension or um to uh go okay we're going to try again tomorrow well i'll meet you before school we'll have a little chat then and to be that sort of calm advocate 
The third one is rapport. So actually you need that really, to be a good Senko, you need to have that, that rapport with pupils, don't you? And actually often with families and often with colleagues as well. But as the most, you know, the child won't come out the cupboard or won't pick up their pen or, you know, we just have that build that rapport when things are going well with that child and then you'll have them when no one no other adult can potentially when when things aren't going so well for them. next one on my list if i can from there is boldness so i talked earlier about not wanting to walk into that english teacher's classroom and give feedback because i'd sort of felt you know i took the coward's option really i want to, i should have gone in and seen this great lesson and gone uh, that was great. Maybe even better if this. But can I ask another teacher to come and see you? So you've got to be bold, haven't you, to walk into any classroom in the school and to feel like actually that's that's fair game. I can go and 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 you know look at what any colleague's doing, and they won't feel that I'm out to get them. But I'm going to be bold enough to go and know that I need to I need to see what's happening in classrooms. The next one for me is to strive for expertise, but to know you're never going to get there. So having those gaps is fine. Acknowledging those gaps is great. Doing something about those gaps is vital. Um, uh, pretending you haven't got gaps is obviously um, is not very helpful. So, but within send is so enormous, and there's so many overlaps into actually things that are quite medical um, and uh, you know really about um, neuroscience and um, you know there's, there's a lot to learn and there's enormous. I could write a book of things I don't know about send, and um, so it's about striving for that expertise, knowing you're never going to quite get there. The next one's a sense of perspective is about doing those impactful things, which is really hard because, again, I, I talked about so much you can do that's at a laptop. Some of those things will be impactful, but actually I would argue they're rarely as impactful as going and looking at that intervention group, walking into that year three science lesson, spending half an hour there and being able to support the teacher to make a few tweaks. There's, you know, it's rare meet, meeting, spending a day meeting 20 parents in, the, you know, in school and talking to them about what what the school is doing for their pupils and and listening to the pupil the parents about what they think we can do a bit a little bit differently co-producing there the next one is to sort of let go of perfection to know that actually i've got to uh, nothing will ever be perfect nothing will ever be finished i still need to look after myself uh, i could stay here till two o'clock in the morning and still wouldn't be done so so i might as well i need to pack up at some point to actually it's vital that by the end of term when I'm not knackered, it's vital that I don't just do a Senko job for six months and then I'm burnt out. And it's vital that I recognize the strengths of the provision. And that might be just going, all right, well, I'm going to, with my line manager, I'm going to make sure that we revisit the development plan often and we recognize the small steps of progress. It might be that we go, um, you know, I, I mark off these things on a Monday you know, and, and, and by the Friday, I make sure I've got at least six of them ticked off. But we recognize the progress. We recognize the achievements there. The next one is status. That doesn't have to be an SLT, of course. I think it's always useful, but um, it's not necessarily an SLT thing for me, but it's needing a voice. In terms of two more from me about being a great sinker, it's about having that open door, but striking a balance. Clearly, if you're available to staff, parents and children all the time, you can never get anything done. And clearly, if you never leave your office, you'll have very little impact. So having an open door, but maybe doing it in a slightly guarded way and going, you know, on a, a Tuesday period one and a Thursday after school, that's when I run my uh, parent clinics or parent meetings, uh, parent surgery, let's say, and, and parents can book in to see me at those times. And I'll meet them at a different time if that's impossible. But that's when I try and keep my parent meetings too. And maybe I, have, I run a staff clinic, again, for two hour long sessions where staff can drop in or book an appointment to see me to troubleshoot a particular class or child or, 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 or curriculum sort of topic that's coming up. So actually, it's an open door, but with some sort of boundaries to mean that the job is manageable. And then the final thing for me around what be, being a great Senko is I always advocate for my Senkos to have a teaching timetable. And I don't just mean, uh, not that it's not vital and tricky, but I don't only mean interventions. I mean whole class teaching. Because ultimately, we can get some interventions right, and that might be great for a child to have a good intervention for 20 minutes twice a week that helps to develop them in a certain area. But actually, that child has six hours in their day where they're in a classroom, most likely. So we need to be thinking, how can I have the most impact on those six hours a day? Well, it's being able to make meaningful and positive, uh, supportive changes to the, the practices of teachers in classrooms. And how can I, how can I um, help teachers to, to develop their practice? Well, it's by still being a teacher myself and by not losing sight of what good teaching is, but just as importantly, not losing sight of how it's really hard sometimes. And uh, I've been teaching um, for longer than I'd remember, I suppose. But 
uh, you know, I had a lesson last week that went quite well and a lesson the week before that didn't really go very well. And I've got, I've have reflected on it and did things a bit better as a result as I still get to know this class I'm teaching. Um, but it's having the humility to go, it's not always right. But having that teaching timetable reminds you of the challenge, helps to hone your craft so that you can then help others to develop their craft. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? Getting in the long grass and then just really experiencing mm. that so you can have more honest conversations. Now, I love your top 10 and I think, you know, I was just scribbling some notes and I think so important to be humble and recognising as a Senko that there's so much to learn and having that humility, being honest, having a sense of humour and just, you know, doing things with love as well. So I think I think yeah. I love really like that top 10. I, I think that, that that's Thanks. great. And we have got a couple of texts in so if you don't mind taking a few questions Great, Gary no that would be fantastic um so Kate has texted in and she says um love the show thanks very much Gary feel like I've learned a lot already so that's great, great feedback <laughs> what are your top tips for working with parents and carers yeah um I, and do you know if Kate's a, a teacher or a Senko or maybe it doesn't matter um Senko Oh, great. Well, um, top tips for Senkos in terms of working with parents is um, I'm going to quote Gareth Morwood here, who I heard speak at a, wonder, a wonderful session recently where he was talking about the best conversations with parents and carers are the ones that you have really regularly and when nothing's wrong. And so it's not only, oh, no, the Senko's calling or, oh, no, I've got a meeting here and we've got so much to discuss. It's probably going to take an hour and a half. Actually, the more I talk about those parent surgeries, we're actually we're seeing parents for shortish probably meetings, but as regularly as they need them within certain parameters. Um, but actually little and often being far better than you know crisis meetings annually or even three times a year. And I think it's not only the meetings, it's the, um, it's the regular communication that um, not every parent or carer will read, but it's another little touch base that, that, that some will find a little bit of an irritant perhaps, but most will find a reassuring uh, sort of sense of the school is still thinking about my child and clearly that can't all be generic I think there's a real place for a sort of half-termly inclusion newsletter uh, for a weekly text that goes out just to the parents of children with send that might say something about um, something to do at home or a school event that's taking place or an inset day on Thursday if we assume that not all of our children are great at giving messages to their parents back anyway and for some of those people to send that will be an additional challenge to talk about you know we've been told we need to bring this or prepare in this way or there's a different thing happening on Friday so those little bits of slightly bespoke communication that are sometimes individualized and sometimes across the cohort but it's keeping the channels of communication open it's um it's asking every teaching assistant let's say before they go home and within their working hours of course to be uh you know phoning three parents every day to make a positive phone call uh, or, or text or email or whatever's easiest in the school or, or note on a particular piece of software that your school uses but to keep those lines of communication open it's not that a senko it's not that all they can ever do is meet parents and i know that some senkos who, who really do that most of what they do is is that work with parents and carers and they become unfortunately sort of you know almost counselors for the parents and again I don't, i'm not meaning to sound unsympathetic at all to to the challenges of parents but again, we've got to have some boundaries. Sometimes we've got to signpost. Sometimes we've got to say, well, we met yesterday. So the next time I'm available will be on Monday. So you can book in that appointment through the front office or something that means it's a bit boundaried. Um, but it's but parents feel like there's lines of communication are open. And where most of what they um, most of that communication is positive so that when it needs to be a conversation that's a little trickier, it's not your only phoning when something's wrong. But actually, it's it's an open line of communication there anyway. That's really helpful. Thank you, Gary. And another message in here from Helen who says, Gary, what are your thoughts on using technology in primary schools and when should teachers stop flogging handwriting lessons and start embracing text-to-speech software? Oh, really interesting question. Thanks, Helen. Um, so the as a little aside, if anyone's not aware of it, and I think this is just as great if you're a teacher or a Senko or a school leader or a teaching assistant, if you've got a real interest in SEND in particular, or it's a real part of your role, then the EEF have a guidance report called SEN in Mainstream. So it takes the best available evidence and talks about things that schools should be doing that the evidence suggests um, supports pupils to make uh, additional progress in school. 
So it's got five. I will come on to your question, Helen, I promise. It's got five recommendations. It talks uh, without going into, into lots of detail, but it talks about um, creating positive and supportive environments for all pupils, that sort of classroom and school environment with positive behavior. It talks about an understanding of pupil needs, which is not just about what the ed psych tells us, but also about every day, every lesson. What do I notice through my adaptive teaching, through formative assessment? So it was about positive support environment and understanding of needs. Recommendation three is about high quality teaching. I'll come back to that in a second. Four is about interventions and five is about use of TAs. So, um, but that, that middle recommendation there, recommendation three is about high quality teaching. And the EEF identifies five strategies or teaching approaches that have a good um, evidence base for supporting those pupils with send. So, and again, I, I come in a long way round to your uh, your question there, Helen. So, um, but which and those five approaches that have a good evidence base for SEN and mainstream um, are um, explicit instruction, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, scaffolding, flexible grouping, and there's lots on the EEF website about this this five-a-day approach. But the fifth one is using technology, and that's where I come to your question there, Helen. So using technology as one of those five approaches that has a good evidence base of supporting pupils with SEND to make additional progress. And that might be about um, uh, pupils doing, um, uh, being able to, to um, practice things, you know, having like an app that differentiates a bit when I get something right or wrong, being able to practice something I've learned. But it also might be, um, alternatively, about recording. So. I think we all accept, don't we, that, that, that for the vast majority of pupils, handwriting and the developing that ability um, uh, and fulfilling the maximum potential as a handwriter is really useful as a life skill still, even in 2023. I think most of us sign up for the fact that that's largely useful. But of course, it's also the case that for some pupils, um, it's the one thing that holds them back the most is uh, that they, you know, they've got all these ideas, they've got brilliant answers, they, they you know, great things are whirring around their brain just beautifully but that ability to get it down on paper and have in writing is a real trickiness there so i suppose my answer is we've got to, we've got to sort of think about the individual child but what i think is there will be a sort of you know halfway house of some kind where it's well actually within extended writing activities we're going to allow this child to um, work with subscribe to an adult or we're going to allow them even better um to uh you know to dictate into a device that can can like you say that speech to text software um and i think there's real there's enormous benefits to that um so use of technology the problem of course is that when used badly it's awful isn't it so if a child is a bit distractible in a class uh and we go okay we'll try with a laptop and actually the teacher you know you know when it's used terribly it's awful isn't it so uh the child arrives to the classroom and sees okay we're doing written work I'm going to go to the Senko's office and get the laptop. The Senko isn't there. So they have to find the Senko. They eventually get the laptop. They go back to the class and it's run out of charge. So they go back to the Senko's office, get the charger, come back to the classroom, have to move desks to a, closer to the wall for the socket. It's an old laptop, so it's 10 minutes to load it up. And then by the time the, um, by the, time the child's ready to start doing some written work, the lesson's finished. So there are, there are ways, of course, where technology is absolutely awful. But I don't think we need to only think of technology, of course, as... Um, as speech to text um, there's also text to speech to allow the written the, you know, the written content to be read aloud for that child um, it's available on basically any device these days um, but there's also things like a teacher using a visualizer and using technology in that way to make that process of learning live not to go to a child here's a pre-planned beautiful model but actually showing them building that sort of metacognitive understanding of how that work is created by showing them how that model paragraph is made, for example. Um, and then, as I've said, you know, if you do something in maths one day, let's give a child an opportunity to practice it 20 times, where the, the, the app or the software makes it a little bit easier if you're getting them wrong and provides a little bit more challenge if you're getting them all right. So, so yeah, enormous benefits to technology for all kinds of reasons. But if, if the technology is not good and the laptops are old and not available, we've got a problem. And if the teacher never checks the work, if the child's typing away, doesn't quite save it in any kind of sensible subfolder then um and the teacher never sees it then clearly that child is losing out they're not gaining so within certain parameters there's an enormous role for technology and the eef's sen and mainstream guidance report um really provides the evidence to support that oh thank you so much yeah no i think that's really really good points and i think we've all struggled and suffered with technology letting us down mm, Thank yes. thankfully not tonight though so we've been well, able to hear so. your <laughs> 
But no, Gary, thank you. It's been an absolute privilege. I can't believe it is approaching 10 o'clock. I think we need another mm. hour. We need to get you on <laughs> again because I, no it's, I've got so many more of my own questions that um, I, I, I'd love to ask you um, perhaps another time. But that's been so helpful and just really informative, really inspiring. And I know from the text coming in, um, you've been a great source of um, encouragement and support and inspiration to many tonight. So thank you so much. It's um, a real I, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope it's been useful and I've really enjoyed it myself. So thanks. Oh, for, thank you that's posting. lovely. Thank you, Gary. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.